the speed with which you write only proves that good things take time. My name is Matthew Grohl. And I'm happy you're not white. My name is Shahir Dowd. And this is the only podcast about movies, specifically the film American Fiction. So we are allowed to tell lies. Yes. Yes. Also... <laughs> Happy Valentine's Happy Day. Happy Valentine's Day, Matt. How are you? Uh, uh, all right. We're recording this on the day of Amore. Amore. That's uh, a pizza. Big, big that's pizza. an eel. It's a big pizza pie. Uh, oh, uh, then Amore eel. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. It's good. You know, it's did just you, a day did of you love. Get a, did you get a Valentine? I did. Yeah. I did. Uh, it was, was very it from lovely. anonymous? No. <laughs> did it appear on your doorstep this morning at 645? No. Did, it, did, did a mass stranger run off when they dropped it off behind the behind a tree? Did you? Did they watch you as you opened the box? Did you send me something <laughs> that I didn't know about? No, I don't know what you're oh, talking about. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Uh, no, it, uh, we today was just a bunch of uh, lugging stuff around Manhattan and, and, and Astoria. It was a very romantic day. Well, can we talk a little bit about the move? Is, sure. the move, is the move uh, on the table? Yeah, the move is the move is public domain. The move is public domain. But you and frequent guest of the show, who many people know, is your long-term attached partner, mm -hmm. other than me. Right, uh, Jamie, are moving in together. That is that is correct. Uh, she's this she's, is monumentous. This is monumentous. It's funny. Uh, I went to out to dinner uh, with uh, other friend of the show, Stephen Buzier, who I've yeah. known for now twenty years. Yeah, uh, and he was like Matt. Kroll <laughs> moving in with a lady or Whoa. like like because I I have I have I have had uh many suitors in the past some yeah. of them long term yeah uh but never taken the jump uh and now we're doing it so uh Jamie's moving oh, is this in your first moving with a with a with a real other. with a real lady with a real <laughs> with a real lady with human skin okay <laughs> okay okay it gain let's see where we go with this um it's, it's pronounced gain gain oh, yeah, um, sorry but no no I, I'm just like <laughs> and it I, puts the moisture on it uh, <laughs> yeah puts no, the lotion on its skin she's, she's moving in here we're actually it's funny so Shahir yeah. I do have to say this too okay this is technically uh because next week you're going to be out yeah the last time you'll record in this room right because you're changing the configuration of your apartment the important thing we wanted to do because it, it, whenever I, I the the goal was to kind of like find a new spot right yeah. for both of us so it felt new and fresh yeah uh i don't know if you looked at the market lately but <laughs> it is rough yeah uh, and so the best um money saving option was to move in here and so to make this place start feeling a little more like both of ours as opposed to just mine uh, we're trying to do a bunch of different sort of renos. We're to renovating it. this whole fucking place. Yeah, so we're That's switching. Court, by the way, I wasn't I know. just swearing for now. Uh, the, we're switching the bedroom and the uh, and the office. But you're entirely. keeping the cinema. Yes, yes. Yeah. The 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 projector. There's no better. It's funny. Uh, Jamie, who she's, I think she's probably said it on this thing, does not like televisions. Okay. Uh, but she does not mind the projector because. Socially, she just doesn't like televisions in she general. She finds personally. that it, it takes, I mean, it <laughs> takes, uh, especially in social situations, spaces you're supposed to just be sitting and conversing yeah. with people. Yeah. Uh, or interacting with humans, it, it sucks the the attention right out the window. She she hates sports bars too, like because okay. you go there and people <laughs> stop. Very specific things. I hate well, no, because sports, sports bars. bars are covered in televisions, <laughs> yeah. and so you don't talk, you stare at a TV, and right. I get it. Um, I love televisions. I have too many of them. Um, but I think that the fact that the projector is kind of out of the it's not out of the way. It's actually front and center, but it doesn't block anything. You have yeah. nice walking through like in front of it, so. Uh, yeah, no. And she has a projector as well because I remember I yep. helped. Uh, yep. So you're gonna you're a dual projector household. We'll probably put that one in the bedroom because again, I yeah. have TV in my bedroom now. She doesn't like TV in the bedroom. The projector kind of feels different. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I don't know. Uh, now I want to make this point as well. I know we've just gone a long time so about sorry. moving in together, but it, it it matters because it's Valentine's Day. You guys are gonna watch movies together. You're gonna be cuddling on the couch, that kind of thing. 
interesting thing experience sort of tangentially related here is that um i i picked up a copy of oppenheimer on blu-ray okay uh the 4k and uh you know it was the it included the 4k and the blu-ray on is it. your projector 4k yet it is not and so this is what i wanted to talk about okay uh, and the only reason this happened was that uh i had a meeting in the city that was close to a barnes and noble and i decided to peruse the shelves at barnes and noble Ooh. and uh oppenheimer was 50 percent off and a couple of uh criterions were why was set. oppenheimer 50 percent off Good question. I'm not exactly sure, but Weird. It, was. it was. And so I was like, okay, I'll get it. Um, and then I went back to uh, my place of business, which has a common room and the common, there's a, there's a cinema in the common room as well. And when I mean cinema, there is a, a 85 inch television uh, sound system, yeah. you know, cinema style seating, all that sort of stuff. It's great. It's great. It's wonderful. Um, and I was like, oh, I didn't realize, but it had a 4k um, Blu-ray player as well. Uh, a 4k, uh, uh, ultra, Blu-ray, ultra, ultra whatever. whatever the fuck it's called. So I threw up, I threw up Oppenheimer on 4K Ultra in this TV, which is a 4K HDR TV. I gotta say, the projector was a much better experience because I threw it on at home as well afterwards, and I was like, 4K HDR does not give me the same experience as a projector. Like I felt my my eight year old two you know HD projector. Um, so it felt better. Felt sharper for one. Wow! It, it just did. It felt it felt less pixelated. Well, you uh, know what's interesting. Yeah. So you and I have the same brand screen. I yeah. know this because I sold you my yeah. old one when I got a smaller one. Yeah. Uh, to fit this apartment, I believe. Yeah. Um, the, I, I wish I could remember the brand. If if you want to email us, <laughs> onlymoviepodcast@gmail.com. I'll look it up. But um, that's that, those screens are so. There's something about the the it's way that the texture is designed. Yeah that it actually says that it refracts the light like 0.23% like a crisper or something, which I didn't ever believed until I looked at other projector screens. Until it I looked just, at a 4K TV, yeah. which ostensibly should be better. Here's the other thing. Maybe the settings are all like, you know, the parent, the parent settings. It had on the, automatic filmmaker settings, so it turned off all of those uh, motion things off. But I honestly, I, I watched it in this beautiful cinema room on an 85-inch 4K HDR TV, and then I watched it on uh, uh, on my projector at home, which is an eight-year-old system that is cobbled together with all sorts of little bits and pieces that is not optimized in the way it should be. And the experience was much better. Um, the projector, the darkness, the sound was better on my shitty little speakers. Everything kind of felt better. I am hoping to convert a little bit of the money we are saving mm -hmm. uh, into a 4K projector and a new sound system. Okay. Because uh, it's funny, my my subwoofer only works half of the time. My, I, I have a, <laughs> guys, people who are listening into this podcast, this is not a technical podcast about projection systems. We will be talking about American fiction tonight, uh, but we just wanted to, we, we want to warm you up. We, it's, it, we, it, listen, it's romance day and our romance. love language is talking about <laughs> the technology <laughs> of how we watch uh, this, this, these films we call show. I don't know. I like, I just, I don't know. I think, I think your home if you're into movies mm -hmm. as much as we are into movies or or mm -hmm. television or in my case gaming you you game a, I game, a decent amount I game. too. Um I game bro. You game bro. <laughs> uh, that's how I know as you know the vernacular. <laughs> yeah. Um <laughs> it, like I I talking about this stuff and figuring it out is a bit of a love language. You yeah. want like uh so uh, a friend of the show who's been on the the old uh, holiday episodes when, when the people come in and talk about the movies uh Joe who yeah. uh, of Sammy and Joe fame. Yeah. Uh Joe is a a British master class at home audio. Oh, really? Like he's just, 
He did research. So when I need a new one, I will be going oh, to him. Well, I that's good to know because I may reach out to him as well. Now, everybody on the internet will know. Find Joe. Find Joe. Hey, everyone at home, if you have... Um, I, I'm curious about this. Email us in onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com and let us know how you designed your optimal way for watching films at home and what that way is. Yeah. Because I do also feel like it's a very personal experience about how you exactly want to do it. Yeah. And when you get to the point where you can adjust it, no matter what budget you're on, just sort of choosing what you want to do within that budget is always something I find fascinating with people. So I'll tell uh, just to prompt the audience, I'll tell you what mine were. Two factors that were really important. So we got the projector based off of actually seeing a projector at your house. I didn't think a projector in an apartment was possible until I came to your place and I saw it. And then, you know, it sort of. Did I, you see that in Brooklyn or in Jersey? I think in Jersey. Okay. Because in one. Jersey, it was a rough setup. Right. No, no. In, in Jersey, it was a good setup. In Brooklyn, it was a rough setup. Either way, it was the first time I saw it and I was like, you know, this is possible. Uh, when we moved into our new apartment, I was like, we have this big white wall. I remember I rented a projector a couple of times and we like watched 10 movies on it. And then I was like, okay, I want to start building up the system. And it became a thing where I was like buying each piece individually, mm -hmm. thinking about it all. Um, but the key factors in my setup that we will go, uh, we'll just get into and prompt some listeners here. I have a shitty sound system. I have a sound bar. It's a Vizio sound bar. It does the job fine. Our apartment's not really optimized for like loud, booming sound or putting up too many speakers. Um, key factor in, in choosing my projector is that it has wireless, wireless HDMI. That's a, that's a big factor. Now that is not an optimal way to plug an HDMI cable into a projector, but it really works for us because it means we don't run a cable from front to back of the, of the apartment. We can kind of keep everything, um, on a bookshelf behind us and it really works well for us. The second thing is I have a Logitech, uh, I forget the, uh, a Logitech Harmony remote control. Yep. And that is a device that, Basically, I've got all these like uh, disparate parts that um, can be all programmed to synchronize with the Logitech Harmony. So I press one button, lights go down, uh, projector That's turns cool. on, uh, Apple TV turns on, soundbar turns on. Uh, that we've got a switcher for the HDMI that flicks over to the right switch. So all of that happens with one press, and then all of it turns off with one press. That's great. So like these are the things that really make my setup personal to me and what I like about it. And I, I knew my my family would be able to, you know, I, I knew that if we had like 10 remotes, for it example, it, it was like, nobody's going to buy into the system. Yep. But the fact that uh, our system A is wireless and B has a single touch button to op to turn on and off really makes a huge difference. So I used to, so back in Jersey, when I had this projector, I have the wireless one as well, but I run wired now. Yeah. Uh, because Wired is better. Yeah. Because yeah. in Jersey, I had it mounted to a ceiling fan bracket. Right. For on the ceiling. And yeah. it was just pointing upside down and down. Yeah. Here it is on top of like a bar stand. Yeah. And it's at the farthest to the right. You can shift the mirrors to make the image the yeah. right shape. Yeah. Uh, because my couch is obviously in front of the screen. But what I really love about this setup and something that I was really proud of with this apartment is you'll notice like I know your console is like in the front <laughs> yeah. underneath your projector. You have yeah. a wider space, I think, between the couch and the projectors the, behind behind I'm sorry, us, the, but uh, the, but the screen. The screen. Yeah. yeah. My all of my gear yeah. is off to the left on a wall that is away. Like you walk through a space between the screen and where that stuff is. Yeah. So I can run a wire from the back corner of the room up to the projector. Yeah. Uh, I even have like little clips on the back of this bar, this standing bar cart. So it can actually it's all hidden. Yeah. And uh, I, I loved that I could do 
wireless, <laughs> but I think my projector is old enough where the connectivity, like it's it's worse than it's worse than Bluetooth in the sense of if it's not connecting for some random reason, you're gonna be there a minute. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, but I I always loved it when it worked. It felt like magic. Yeah. It's amazing, right? Um, anyway. Do you think we've lost listeners at this yeah, point? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you think Actually, if you are out. still here, thank you. <laughs> We're Jeffrey Wright. We owe you an apology. We will get to American fiction. But we have a couple of emails first this week. We do. Uh, the first email that came in, uh, was from Steve. We got uh, actually both these emails are about our Maestro review, which is a couple of weeks ago. Uh, hey, Steve writes in. Hey, man, you're here. I just listened to your Maestro episode, and I'm glad you aren't complete, completely bashing it because I really love this film more than I expected to. Uh, and there were a lot of mixed reactions when it came out. Some moments reminded me of musicals like the opening scene tracking towards him uh, in the concert hall, while other moments he and his wife were actually in the musical. Those were fun nods to his work in musical theater. The Mahler performance in the cathedral, though, uh, was breathtaking, and our audience gave a round of applause afterward because it felt like we were all truly in there for six, minute, six minutes. I'm not so sure I would have had the same experience on my TV, sitting on a couch, especially the applause, even on one of our nice projectors. You need system. to get that wireless, <laughs> man. Um, I think you're both right about the comparisons to Tar, though. That film seems to be more about a conductor explaining what conducting is, while Maestro is more about how his music was a backdrop to his life and his marriage, as if his music was moving through his life. The genius behind the conducting never really gets highlighted through dialogue in the same way as Tar. That being said, the Mahler scene was incredible, and we really get to see the passion behind his conducting. So while, he can, while you don't see his genius as a conductor compared to other composers, you do get to see his passion throughout. At the screening I went to, there was a Q&A with Bradley Cooper, and he said that his approach uh, to, to how to tell the story is that he wanted it to feel like listening to his music so that the story would flow just like the pieces did. I think I felt that while watching. It wasn't cookie cutter, uh, a cookie-cutter biopic um, like a lot of others, and I respected it for that. Plus, Cooper is an incredibly passionate about his film, and it's hard not to take that into account, too. Keep on Potting. That you know what I I don't have a lot to say to this other than our reaction from that episode was that we were a little um, I guess underwhelmed by the idea that the film didn't really explain to us being musical idiots uh, what made um, Leonard Bernstein a genius. Um, but I think I've 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 seen enough of these comments from people who do love Leonard Bernstein who do love music who said that that actually really worked for sure. them. And I, and I, the thing I really responded to in your email, Steve, most was that it wasn't a cookie cutter biopic. Yeah. Like it didn't do the Bohemian Rhapsody kind of thing. It felt new, fresh on its own terms. No uh, lines were walked. No, yeah, no lines were walked. So uh, I love it for that. Thank you for sending us that in, Steve. Do you, do you have anything? Well, the next email is about uh, Maestro as well. Why don't we just keep it on rolling? This is from Muhammad. says, hey, guys, hope you're all doing well. Yesterday, I finally watched Tar, and I'm kind of <laughs> torn. On one side, I loved the acting, the pacing, the cinematography, and the way the camera just lingers toward the character like a voyeur. But on the other hand, I felt like there was a wall not allowing me to fully connect with the characters. Maybe a rewatch is in order. I also saw Nick Cage and Nicholas Holtz <laughs> vampire horror comedy, Reinfeld. Um, Renfield. Wow, I can't even say the name right. Yeah. Uh, and I got to say that Nick Cage is a national <laughs> treasure. I mean, has there ever been an actor who understands the assignment better than Nick Cage? <laughs> anyway, wish you all the best. P.S. The voiceover that you hear at the end of Tara during the Monster Hunter concert is by Richard Epcar, one of the voice actors in Ghost in the Shell. Ooh, good fun fact. Nice, good pull. Yeah, uh, actually, because uh, we, I remember the first time we wa both watched Tar. We're like, what is that at the end? Or maybe you knew, but I was I, like, I knew it was Monster, Monster Hunter. Hunter. I was like, oh, and then I didn't know like what, like, I didn't know that Monster Hunter 
orchestration was a big deal. When the new Monster Hunter comes out, yeah. you should play it with me. Okay. It's going to be in like a year. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but like, because Monster Hunter World, which you can get on the PS5 right now, is excellent. Yeah. But I've already done it. But it's a really fun multiplayer game in my Okay. Has All nothing right. to do with anything we're talking about today. <laughs> what are we talking about tonight? Well, the internet movie database says that the film American Fiction is about the following. A novelist who is fed up with the establishment profiting from black entertainment uses a pen name to write a book that propels him into the hearts of the hypocrisy and madness he claims to disdain. Was he bamboozled by his approach? I like this write-up. Okay. Eight out of ten. Okay. It it flowed. It tells you exactly what the movie is. It actually felt a little like poetry-ish. <laughs> like it had like a good just it had a good mouth feel. Do you think Monk would appreciate the actual uh, writing here? Yeah, actually I do. <laughs> so uh American fiction is the last of the best picture nominees that we are going to be reviewing on this podcast because it is the last one we have to review because we've done all of them at this we point. We did it. Um it is nominated for best picture, best actor, best supporting actor, best adapted screenplay and best original score. Now, uh I think there's an interesting thing that we've talked about on this podcast many a time before, which is that the idea that certain movies really benefit from being nominated for an Oscar. I think even our film discussion last week, Zone of Interest, mm -hmm. is a film that really, the fact that it is nominated for an Oscar actually really heightens the sense yes. of that movie because you you understand what the importance of it is. And there are other movies that don't do well once they're nominated for an Oscar because they fall under a certain extra layer of scrutiny that perhaps wouldn't be there had they not been nominated. Now, this is all subjective. This is no, There's no scientific reasoning for it. But a film like Green Book, for example, doesn't sure. do well by being nominated for an Oscar. If that movie had not been nominated for anything, let alone one Best Picture, I think it would be like, that was a fine movie. It was fine, you know? Um, I guess, yeah. Yeah. Um, I wonder a couple of, of the couple of the nominees uh, will feel like that this year. There are 10 nominees. Um, but I wonder where American fiction will land in that discussion. Hmm. And I'm curious what your initial response to this movie was. I kind of fucking loved it. Okay. Uh, I, I vibed with this movie <laughs> so hard. Yeah. Uh, it was so out of all of the, after everything was announced, this was the one that I was the most excited to watch and discuss on the podcast. It okay. felt the most interesting to me. It felt like it was, um, it, it, it felt both important and fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I was very much looking forward to it. It was one of those things where, uh, just time permitting, I watched it at home and you can't rent it. You can only buy it. Yeah. And a true testament to that awful situation is when, after I watched the movie, I'm like, man, I'm glad I bought that. <laughs> I would have now I'd rather physical. That's the other, that's the flip side of the coin because now yeah. I won't buy it on physical because I have it on digital, even though that can go away at any whim of Jeffrey Bezos. But I really, really dug this. I thought I had a lot of weird, deep human thoughts. Okay, weird, deep <laughs> uh, human thoughts. And it's funny because obviously this movie uh, deals uh, very much with uh, race and stereotypes and and all of that stuff. Uh, things that I can never truly understand. And I'm always sort of thankful that pieces like this come out to help me kind of get it. Mm -hmm. uh, but And I think those parts are very, very strong. But... I think what really got me, and I'll get to it a little bit later as we start talking about specificities of the film, uh, was the family dynamic. Mm -hmm. And this movie 
this will, I'll start my conversation with this. I like the, I think the movie is, is shot uh, very well. It's a, it's a good looking film. It, like the cinematography never blew me away, but I don't think it was like sort of meant to, I think it was just supposed to like give the, the scene or the actors the best possible shot to get their performances across. Um, the score was really, really, uh, really, really, uh, just it a, emotional. It it's a, it's a delightful jazzy score. Um, but the thing that I will say is made me reflect on a lot of human experiences in my life. Okay. Namely how you often don't get to control how you are viewed. Okay. Um, you don't get to control when good or bad things happen to you and the way in which in really hard times, uh, sometimes the people in your life that you don't expect to be sort of a bedrock end up being a bedrock. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I, after I, I like actually kind of stopped it, uh, two or three times in it. And I just was like sitting there thinking about stuff. And I know this is sort of a bit of a, it all m mixes in with, with everything else. I don't know. It, it, I don't want to say it gut punched me, but it, it more than a lot of other movies that are sort of about, slice of modern life and and various issues therein mm -hmm. this one i think honestly due to the script and the performances just was like oh this is the most real now feeling movie i've seen in a long time while also again because life is funny and silly as well being pretty fucking hilarious along the way like that's kind of where i went with it we'll get into more specifics as we i feel like i danced around a lot of stuff but uh what about yourself I, you said you watched it twice. I did watch it twice, um, mainly because I felt that the movie, uh, A, because I had the opportunity to, because I, like you, purchased it. Um, and so once watched it on the projector and once watched it on an iPhone like it was intended to be. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, the, the second time was kind of just to revisit my feelings about it and and think about it. And I, I think the thing is, I found the movie to be quite slippery. Um, like a really slippery movie to kind of wrap your head, your, your head around. Because on the one hand, um, it is doing two things, as you mentioned. One is it is a satire of uh, both the American publishing industry, but also a satire on uh, American race relations in terms of uh, where we are today. It's not too far from Spike Lee's movie Bamboozled many years ago and Justin Simeon's Dear White People, you know, in terms of, how far it's willing to push the satire. Um, it is It is a, uh, a hop, skip, and a jump away from the more satirical sorry to bother you. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it falls into that category as well. Although the satire is quite gentle, mm -hmm. I found, and yeah. quite, um, there's a weird thing because the satire, in a way, sometimes feels incidental to what the film, to what the heart of the film really is, which is about Monk, uh, reconnecting with his family after, you know, having kind of moved away to Los Angeles and then realizing that this family as, um, uh, Sterling K Brown's character says will break your heart. Um, because it is about a family that's ultimately every part of is broken in some way. So his mother, uh, is going through dementia, uh, Alzheimer's, this, uh, yeah. Alzheimer's, and she's not, uh, that that's not to say that she's broken, but you know, this is after learning that her husband, uh, was having numerous affairs while um, while they were married, and he's uh, passed probably some time ago. Um, I believe via suicide. Via suicide, exactly. Um, then there is uh, there's a uh, 
I think all three children have been through divorce at this point. We don't actually. We don't uh, know if Monk, no, has, Monk been, has never been married. Monk has never been married, but the two other siblings, um, uh, Tracy, Tracy Ellis, Ellis Ross plays they, Lisa, yeah, and, and then uh, of uh, course uh, uh, Sterling plays Clifford. Yeah, uh, are divorced as well. Um, so it is about this family kind of like re recontextualizing itself. Also, and, Clifford uh, comes out. He was and, married and, to a woman, and, and he he's, is a gay he's man. He's gay now. Um, I actually thought all of that stuff was lovely. Like I, when I watched that, especially when. Um, uh, the 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 family uh, I guess housekeeper maid uh, uh, you know caretaker uh, Lorraine. yeah Lorraine the caretaker Played by was, uh, Myra Lucretia Taylor uh, was getting married again I thought all of that stuff was just lovely to watch and and I will say this I would a hundred percent throw down Sterling K Brown as the best supporting actor uh, out of out of all the nominees I I feel like this is a performance that steals the show without stealing the show. And it's a, uh, compared to every other performance, I think that's in the best supporting actor category, uh, which is uh, Robert De Niro and Killers of the Flower Moon, Robert Downey Jr. and Oppenheimer, Ryan Gosling and Mark Ruffalo. There's an interesting thing here, which is which I think is unique to this film, which is that Sterling K. Brown's character in American fiction feels like he's in a movie of his own and we are just witnessing snippets of it. And I kind of love that quality to it, which is that I feel like, he is living, you know, he he pops into the movie, but he's living an entirely different movie. And and I love like just the snippets we got of it and how heartfelt we see that his pain is. So I, I would actually 100% throw down for Sterling K. Brown as best supporting actor, whatever that metric yeah, is. Yeah. I think it's funny. I, I agree with the sentiment of what you are saying, but I don't think he's in his own movie. I think... I think the work that, uh, that Sterling K. Brown did with that character... To make to make that character fit into this thing while coming in and out. What I mean by that is that I feel like, from a storytelling point of view, he is a rich, fully realized. That's character my, That's where I was getting. That doesn't that that who isn't dependent upon the activities of this film to exist for us. And that's why he feels real. Yeah. Weirdly, that's why he feels more real than Robert Downey Jr.'s character in Oppenheimer. Exactly, Robert Downey uh, Jr.'s character in Oppenheimer kind of feels like he exists solely for the contradiction of Oppenheimer. Yes. You know, uh, Kin is exactly that. Um, Robert uh, De Niro and Kills of the Flower Moon, maybe a little bit. Now less. then, we, it's funny, then we get into sort of the ranking of performance. The only person I think that gives uh, Sterling K. Brown a run for his money is Ryan Gosling. Now it's a different, it's a different, different kind of acting. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but both of them use extremes to elevate the point of the films that they are in. Yeah. And they're the other. Well, again, do not get me wrong. Mark Ruffalo was a fucking delight in Poor Things, yeah. and I would be so happy if he won as well. I really think, like, but if I if I was voting for the Academy, it would one hundred percent be Sterling K. Yeah. Uh, Sterling K. Brown. I, so I just love the idea, you know, like, and he comes in with these lines every now and again, like, uh, "This family will break your heart." You know, people want to love you, monk. You should let them in, and those don't feel written by. They feel this, like a person saying it. Yeah, they don't feel like the central character was really writing these ideas or the, the filmmaker was writing these ideas in order to help the central character. So I, I think I've pointed that out that, you know, my feelings were that the the satire and the human f drama were kind of working in parallel with each other. They inter interacted in sort of some interesting ways. But I found that the satire was kind of incidental and soft. And the human drama, while lovely and I enjoyed every part of it, didn't feel like a complete story to me as much as it felt like a really beautiful slice of interaction. Now, 
the filmmaker who does this kind of thing really well, and the film that this really reminded me of was um, James L. Brooks and uh, As Good As It Gets. I think that's that's a film that kind of plays in this field uh, in many ways to me with a little bit more success in the way that it weaves together its narratives. Um, and I think this there is a lot of interesting material at play here. And why I watched it a second time was that I found that when I kind of discarded the um, the Oscar nomination of it all, I and I just watched it, I found that it played for me a lot better. Hmm. It played for me a lot gentler and a lot more sort of nuanced. And I was particularly sort of keenly aware of um, uh, Monk's sort of literary ambitions. And so the ending, which plays more into the satire than into the family drama, um, played a little bit better because it became more central to who Monk is as a writer than than it did about the satire that he was trying to portray with the writing of this book. Uh, was it uh, Stagar Lee? Yeah, Stagar Lee. Yeah, Stagar Lee's his, uh, his book, My Pathology. Uh, or or eventually just fuck. Um, it's it's really interesting material. I think Cord Jefferson does really really well here. First time, first, first time, time director. Filmmaker. He he wrote uh, episodes of Watchmen as well. So and he wrote Good Place. Oh right, I didn't. And, I didn't and if it. you think about it, a lot of the satire feels very good place. Yeah, there's a gentleness to the satire. You know, there's a sort of an odd thing that happens, which is that wow, twenty five uh, episodes of Good Place. Yeah, there's an odd thing that happens, which is that the satire feels like it should be bigger in the world of the film, and it's not. So I actually, I mean, I you, I agree that that's what it that that's the size differential sort yeah. of in the movie. Yeah. It's not. I don't think it should be because I do think that that whole thing, while it is the sort of the hook and to get you in, it's where a lot of the comedy comes from. I feel like it's also like the chord that really makes Monk's journey through his family kind of land. So the, then, this is the interesting thing I said about it being a slippery film, mm -hmm. which is that. The satire really is pointing to the idea of expectations for African-American writers and what their story should be about. Mm -hmm. And in a way, the, the fact that the satire is separated, you know, like in an almost incidental way to the family drama is kind of the point of what Monk is talking about, which is that would this film, would this story of this family reconnecting itself, an African-American family reconnecting itself, play or get the hook into the audience if it didn't have this sort of biting satire about race relations in it. And that's and that's the sort of slippery side of it that I that I kind of feel like, which is that I don't think it entirely works. But, but I think but I, I think that's also kind of the point. I know. I, I mean I agree. I I don't think half the ingredients of a cake work as a good cake. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's it's this was designed but, very, very clearly but, to but, balance but, these things. But it's also intentionally meant to look like a de deconstructed cake. What they're offering you is a deconstructed cake. And and what they're saying is, you know- I don't, I don't agree with that. He, he, hold on. Yeah. What they're saying is, there is an expectation on African-American films and audiences mm -hmm. that this film be trauma porn in some way. And we're going to make a satire about that. But essentially, it's about this lovely family that is having a very, you know, common- kind of, uh, you know, drama about their lives reconnecting, uh, reconnecting, and it's very well written, it's very funny, it's very light, it's delightful to watch, 
and and I and I think what they what the argument that the film is making is is that if you if you don't buy into the satire, do you buy into that side of it on its own terms? That and could definitely be an argument. I mean, that's literally the movie having its cake and eating it too. Like that's literally like that <laughs> is a lot of cake. Going that on is here. the point. Yeah, it's a lot hey, of coconut cake. But but see I, last week's I, episode. Yeah, yeah. But I also at the same time think that there's a, a slight disconnect for me about the way the satire weaves in that story. And huh. I I kind of felt, like I said, the second time around, it felt a little bit more natural. I still think that the ending is certainly a choice and, and an interesting choice. I usually hate endings like that. Yeah. I really liked it here. Then I was like, wait, why? Yeah. Why do I like this? And I think it's literally because of the thing you just described, because this is a movie collapsing in on itself. It, it is does a cake, collapse in on itself. It is a yeah. cake eating its own frosting. Yeah. Uh, the That really connected with me. And it's funny. I was like, well, hold on. Has this ever happened in a movie before that like a, a ubiquitous ending, uh, either multiple endings or something else? And again, we've talked about the lobster. We've talked yeah. about a ton of stuff that I just normally don't like these. Like, what could it be? Uh, but I think the po when the point is, what could it be? That's when it works. The other one that has worked for me, again, because it was built around a literal show, yeah. was Wayne's World. Yes. Uh, Wayne's World's ending. Again, <laughs> different vibes. Yeah, yeah. But American fiction and Wayne's World. But, yeah. but, but like same exercise, yeah. <laughs> same exercise in how you end a film. I think American fiction's tie, well, ties it to the through line narrative of the film better. Wayne's World ties it to a comedy about a show that then could have different like things. Yeah. So like, uh, I don't know. I, I really, really, really thought that it did such a wonderful balancing act of mixing all the ingredients together to get like, to, to make not only the social commentary about how African-American act, uh, uh, writers and are handled in, uh, the entertainment industry yeah. while also mirroring that perfectly with how monk handled his family and his own, uh, thoughts on what was not necessarily race, but like, um, how people should act yeah. or, or whatever. There's a lovely thing with, um, uh, who is the actress who plays the other writer? Um, uh, oh, uh, Issa Rae. Yeah. 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 Uh, potential is play, the, plays, uh, Sintara golden. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, that is the line of the film, right? Potential is uh, is when you think what you see in front of you isn't enough. Yeah, that's like the that it's, is the critical yeah, line. Yeah, that's when it sort of flips everything on its head. And yeah. so, like, I really like how it felt like everything that was happening with the farcicalness of of the stuff he was trying to get away from in race relations and having it just sort of like be the thing that's pushing his life forward. Yeah. is kind of how his entire life has been with his family yeah. his his personal life moved forward because he shut him his own self out and like wasn't a, like wasn't his true self around his family and just sort of excommunicated himself from them uh and didn't really want to be a part of it because he was a lot like his father in that way yeah like there's there's a lot of weird connective tissue i thought you know what i thought was fucking great in the first i don't know 15 minutes was uh Therese ellis ross's lisa character the sister mm -hmm. Every scene they were in together, and, oh, and it was delightful. Spoiler yeah. alert: she she passes away in the film very quite early on and suddenly. Yeah. Um. But I don't have a sibling. Yeah. 
Uh, but the moments of like them riding in the car and the quiet and whatever, I've been with like that with people that I've been close with that I haven't seen in a while. Yeah. And I was like, this is the most realistic depiction of someone you care about, but you're kind of pissed at that you haven't talked to, to in a while that you'd love to be closer with, but you know, you'll be so fucking annoyed if you are like, <laughs> there's, there's a really cool vibe there that you don't get to see off. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's a realistic sibling relationship, but it's certainly an idealistic sibling relationship, which is that these two people care about each other. They can pick it up where they, where they lift off. And I, you know, the best thing about siblings is you can rib each other, Yeah, you know? And like, so when he asks, you know, she says, um, it's actually, it's a, it's a conversation that my wife and I have had a lot, which is that he says, what you do is important. She is a, um, she is a, a doctor. Yeah. Um, and she tells that great Roe v. Wade joke as well about like, uh, why is, uh, being abandoned on a boat, uh, a legal issue. It's Roe versus Wade. Yeah. Um, I've just butchered that horribly. That's okay. But 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 she says, uh, you know, there's a line where she says, um, well, you know, he says, you you what you do is important, and she says, well, what you do changes people's lives. Books change people's lives. And he said, has any book I've ever written changed your life? And she said, yes, the last one. My table was crooked, and your book was the perfect height to straighten it out. You yeah. know, and that's the kind of like sibling ribbing that like is wonderful and these two people care about each other i did find her demise abrupt and it was very abrupt it was incredibly abrupt and felt i guess like a um a mechanic of it's not to say that it couldn't happen and there's nothing about the way it's done that says it couldn't happen but the mechanic of it felt very much like the story is going to take a turn for you now. I have not had a ton of loss in my life when it comes to people yeah. yet. We're all going to experience yeah, it. Yeah, and that's something that I thought about a lot while watching this movie. Yeah. Um, but something I really liked about this movie in that is because and I think it all ties together. It's because all of these characters feel so real to me that then when that happened, it didn't feel jarring to me in the sense of like, if I look at it as a, just a strictly film structure thing, yeah. I probably would lean on jarring. Yeah. But, it was just one of those things where it's like, oh, yeah, by the way, life doesn't give a fuck about your plan. And then like that set into motion so many other things that he had to do with it. I, I get that. And, I, I think the movie kind of if it's a if it's a hurdle, the movie kind of gets over it pretty quickly. It's again, I feel like it's. Look, maybe it could have been done smoother or better, but actually, I don't know for the effect it gave me if it could. It was so effective because yeah. you kind of watch it and go, oh, what? You know, like because when something like that happens, especially yeah. to a character you kind of just met and you also really like, and you can tell the other character has complicated feelings about, yeah, um, you kind of get to be in a place of not knowing what's going to happen next. And because the ride is so good and the performances are so excellent and the and this and the writing is just off the wall, uh, you you get to enjoy not feeling comfortable while also feeling comfortable. Like it, it never lets you settle. I'll tell you why I still found it to be jarring. And it's it's weird what you say, though, because, yes, if the writing and the performances and the rest of the film didn't work as well as it did, mm -hmm. then this would be, like, more of a hurdle. Yeah. But the movie kind of gets over it because it's got more interesting yeah. things to do. But, like, if you just watch it from the outside, there's a kind of shuffling of characters that happens there, which is that she leaves the film and then her brother comes into the film. And it's like, and I was like, oh, why did... Why did the film need to do that? Like, what consequence would it have been 
to have them coexist in the film together because it's clearly a choice to kill her off. Like there's no, you know, like there's no greater narrative construction to that other than I think it's just, you know, like, like, yes, let's kill this character it off. It feels, it feels like it's for me, it's twofold. Mm -hmm. One, it's the sort of like, uh, logic being taken care of. Well, she's in town. She's a doctor. She watches after mom. Yep. Uh Oh, the two brothers that are that are away that aren't as close anymore for various reasons are now are now in charge of mom who's going through some harder and harder stuff. Uh, also, it sets up the arm's length of Monk from the family as a whole because he gets to have both angry, funny and intimate moments with a person who is kind of the most adult of everyone in the family. And then when you mean, that you mean Sterling K. Brown? Or, no, uh, 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 Lisa. Okay. Uh, when when she passes, mm -hmm. none of them are ready to step up. Yeah. And they all deal with it different. Obviously, Monk is our main, uh, you know, through point. Yeah. But that's how I see it. I see I, it as a structural uh, uh, foundation of the film. I think the problem for me is that yeah, it did feel like the char the movie was like shuffling characters around, and then again, it wouldn't work so well if Sterling K. Brown's character wasn't as interesting. Like he was really fascinating to watch sure, and, it, and and he kind of brought something different to the movie but anyway. it also wouldn't have worked if lorraine wasn't as interesting or if like mm -hmm. or if someone else wasn't as in, like, like it's just kind of like again i think this movie lives and dies on the balance that it strikes and it knows what it's doing like i do think this mm. this movie's like a jenga tower yeah, right like it's slippery <laughs> well, but like yeah, yeah if you took a piece out or two it's probably going to topple pretty quick but and then like it doesn't take those pieces out. The, it like thing, does the, the thing. things that like sort of played in my mind were was that okay, the, so now what's happening from a storytelling point of view is that there is a financial burden placed upon Monk in order to figure out how to make money. And lo and behold, not you know, sort of incidentally, he comes up with this uh with this idea to write a book or he kind of you know, he does it as a fuck you to yeah, a publisher. Yeah, exactly. He writes this book and and he, for the first time in his life, he's offered seven hundred thousand dollars to to do that as well as $4 million for the, the movie adaptation and the, and the book becomes a number one bestseller. Now that's a huge change of life mm -hmm. for this character. It doesn't feel like a huge change of life for the character. It, it, it feels well, sort of I like mean, incidental. Also, I mean, he's making a decent amount of money, but now he also has to take care of his mom and do all this other stuff. But, like, but you know what I mean? Like the, 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 up until that point, he's like, who's going to pay for this. I can't really bring much in. And suddenly that problem and probably goes away in its entirety, right? I think that, again, the piece is sort of balancing out on themselves. The reason I think that is, is Monk is the kind of character, it seems, that would never fucking ever go forward with this because he wants to tell them to fuck off, not make money off of doing the thing he hates. But he does but, make money off it. I know, but he has to do that in order to take care of his mother and step up. I think that's the only way that that character actually keeps going with the ruse like this, yeah. is to make sure now that he is being forced after exiting this family, coming back in, and his brother, as you say, is so in and out and flipping it like he's here and he's not and whatever, he can't do it. He's not going to do anything for 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 a, a myriad of valid reasons yeah. um, that he now has to. It's like, OK, Monk has to do this thing now that he hates in order to step up for his family. Something I really loved about that whole sort of C plot, though, yeah. is it sets up the understanding and puts you into the headspace of why he's actually doing it. It doesn't compromise his morals or more so that would ruin it. You believing that the character would do it. Yeah. But also the money I loved the, how little of a plot point it was because that was never, ever the point. It was just 
what can solve help solve mom problem from a from a purely um you know financial or or logistical thing mm-hmm. this can but that means i have to do the thing i fucking hate and was making fun of Okay, step one in taking care of my family is realizing it can't just be all about me and I have to do this fucking thing that disgusts me. This, like, yeah, I, I found that to be. But I love a, that they didn't wallow in the money. Like, it was yeah. never like, oh no, he'll lose the money. What'll he do? Like, I no, like no, that. But, but it's also like, it didn't feel like the the dramatic change of fortunes really affected the character that much because it wasn't about that. It was, it was a. But, but, like, but, but you could, you know, just from a storytelling point of view, this character has his life has dramatically changed, right? Right, yeah. like, like it's it's dramatically changed. If you if a person who hasn't been able to sell a book suddenly gets offered four million dollars and whatever, the, you know, he's a millionaire now. Well, was he offered four million dollars? He was uh, he was offered four million dollars for the movie adaptation, plus the book became a New York Times number one selling bestseller, as well as the fact they uh, gave him. Well, a, that uh, number one bestseller yeah. was only. I mean, again, I'm not going to do, do he, the money. He, he he was also offered seven hundred thousand dollars for yeah. it. So he this guy has gone from not selling a book, you know, not being able to afford his mother's monthly bill, to becoming a millionaire. Sure, right? But and, I don't. And, but and I don't that, I, that's like, a dramatic transformation. Sure. I think the movie knows what is important for the character and the journey, and it focuses on those things. I think the thing for me is that logically, it feels incidental that 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 the, this character just off on the side has become a multimillionaire. Yeah, right? because it's not about him becoming a multimillionaire. Like you're, what, you're you're right. However, as I'm watching it, I'm saying, why is it that this character has become a multi? And and this is that point where I say the satire feels incidental it feels like it's kind of on its own track doing some interesting things and like it also feels like the scale of the fraud that's going on here like is kind of big like Mm -hmm. i don't know if you remember uh the 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 author james Frey and the and the book he wrote a million little pieces no this was a huge deal this book was a number one bestseller and james Frey, what the the sort of story the two sides of the story as it goes was that james Frey wrote this book and um, the publishers decided to publish it as uh, nonfiction. And it was a story about like, you know, like him, the author falling into um, into myth addiction or something like that. And, and like it hit the harrowing journey of it coming back. And as it turned and, and, and what happened was like in this film, there's a scene where, you know, he goes on TV talk shows about it as well. Uh, Oprah you know, listed this as the as the best book of the summer. And then it was discovered that this was actually all a lie and it was the entire story was made up. And James Frey had to go on national television and apologize for it and what have you. My point being is that the scale of the fraud, you know, like this is a number one best-selling book, you know, written by a, con- you know, supposedly a convicted, um, a convicted criminal who's on the run from the law. That feels like a pretty big story, you know, like, but it, doesn't feel big in the film. It feels kind of like incidental. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, but again, I, I again, you know, you just watch like James, the Oprah James Frey thing was a massive moment in culture. Sure. It was a massive. No, I, I get that. <laughs> yeah. This movie isn't that moment. Like it, it has a similar trapping, <laughs> but again, I, the movie, I think consistently lets you know all the time what it finds important. Right. Um, and never was I dragged out of it. And it sounds like you were, and I'm sure other people were too, uh, by the, a logical fallacy of us not seeing how money affected him or, or 
the, and I think the ending actually does a lot of heavy lifting to <laughs> alleviate that because in one of the endings that uh, yeah. it kind of comes to a through line to fruition, <laughs> yeah. but it's also again a commentary on a lot of different things. And we don't know; it's not it's not meant to be taken as literal. It's meant to be taken as how this could possibly go out. And so this, so that's the kind of thing where I, the rewatch of it, allowed me to kind of accept the movie for what it was and kind of enjoy the kind of literary ambitions of Monk to write the ending of his own film three times over. And, you know, uh, wants to be a blank space because he loves the ambiguity of it. Mm -hmm. That's the one, that's that's Monk's ending. Mm -hmm. The second ending was really the um, the ending of the familial drama where he reunites with, um, uh, who is the the neighbor across the street played by um, uh, Erica? Erica oh, Caroline. Caroline, yeah, played by Erica Alexander. He reunites with her. Um, you know, so that is the sort of gentle, beautiful fam familial drama wrapping up. The camera zooms back across the, uh, are they, they're in Boston? Uh, uh, they are, I think they're on the cave. Somewhere like that. It, it pulls back in the no, night. No, he's in. And, and it's, it's not the ending that the producer wants because they're not making a rom-com. Yeah. And then the ending that he really wants and is happy with, which, which Monk knows, you know, says an absolute fabrication is that. Uh, Monk's character is shot on stage, and of course, the, the the trauma porn of it all kind of takes center stage. And I, I, the first time around, I found that that ending was slippery because I was like, "Oh, I, I think the point of this is to suggest that we're we the audience wouldn't go in for the rom com ending. We the audience would probably go for the." Um, go for the, the establishment uh, yeah the, you know the, the sort of trauma porn ending mm -hmm. um but then that's the point of the movie because it does have this lovely sort of familiar drama to it where it really works for me in the last moments of the film the last scene is he goes out to the car Sterling K Brown is there and says who would play me Tyler Perry of course mm -hmm. and they look and and monk looks over and there is an extra in the film who is clearly playing a slave and they look at each other they acknowledge that this is what it is, you know, like I get it. And, and they drive off. And I think the movie kind of has that sort of gentle spirit about it that kind of worked. And so, like I say, it's a slippery movie for me, which is one that I, I don't, I don't think necessarily fully works, but there's a lot to like here. And there's a lot that's sort of interesting. And I like the, the, the sort of variation of what it's trying to do. And I like, I wonder if maybe a third viewing might make this click entirely for me. It's still, for me, it just didn't quite click. Right. But it, but it was like, okay, I think it's interesting. Yeah. For me, it, I think it clicked entirely. I think I like, I like my Jenga analogy more than my cake analogy because <laughs> it, it does feel like this movie feels like a Jenga tower, like 30 moves in that you walk by and you look at and you're like, how is this standing? Right. This must have taken incredible time and skill and like to know this thing must have been crafted to know where every piece is. For me, that's how it felt. OK, it never felt slippery to me. It felt it felt highly intentional. Yeah. And every time I thought I kind of wrapped my head around like the meta narrative of it, it kind of rewrapped that meta narrative around in a different way. Yeah. And uh, whether it's the familial stuff mixed with the race uh, relations mixed with the movie treating both of those things as external forces, as well as internal ones. Like this movie is just layer upon layer upon layer of very carefully crafted Jenga blocks that I 
I was, I did. I paused it two or three times to be like, very rarely do I pause a movie at home when I'm enjoying it. Yeah. And I had to pause it sometimes and be like, this, and it, I just was like saying to myself or the cat or in my head, this is excellent. Yeah. And, I mean, and I don't know. I, I really appreciated the balancing act that this movie did. It's interesting because even as I see it, you know, as I made the comparison to as good as it gets, which is, uh, about, you know, Jack Nicholson as a kind of uh, surly uh, author in the literary world uh, having to sort of navigate uh, and who's isolated himself off in the world and having to navigate like real human relationships. Um, Greg Kinnear in a um, in an early role as well, which which was quite heartfelt and beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the slipperiness of this film is the suggestion that even that comparison I've made indicates the idea that the film has which is that we the audience would not watch the black version of that movie we need the trauma porn to go with it and that's you know and and while i'm kind of going well that's a you know a more functional movie the movie's kind of you know saying well also would you watch the black version of that or would you watch a film a film like this with the, with these black characters and you know like without the hook of this sort of like satire that's going on. It and, it throws it in your it, face and I love it for I, it. I, and I, I think that's interesting. Yeah, I think that's a a really interesting way to maneuver this movie. So that's that's kind of why I felt like I couldn't quite grasp what the movie's doing. For me, the Jenga analogy, it didn't quite build a tower that I was sort of willing to, to, to enjoy. Uh, it didn't quite click for me. But I thought it was really interesting. And this is the, you know, and then this is coming back to that early point, which is that had the film not been nominated for Best Picture, I think I might have been a little bit more, huh. you know, oh, okay, cool. That's an interesting idea. But because it's nominated for Best Picture, and as much as I like to say I don't put value in the Oscars as much as as much as I so the moniker of Best Picture kind of makes you watch the film in a different way. And, 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 you know, like you're sort of like left to wonder, well, this must've clicked for a lot of people. It's funny for me. It doesn't, here's what it does. And I think we both, even though we don't want to do put a lot of weight behind the Oscars. I mean, we literally put out 10 yeah. hours of content based around it a year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at this point. Oh, more than that. Cause we'll do an episode. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 Um, but when I'm watching, so the thing that the Oscars do for me, is they get me to watch things I wouldn't otherwise watch. Right. But I also don't really actively, I don't think ever while I'm watching it, think about the award in a context. Right. I, I don't know. But, but, it, but there's, you know, there is that thing, which is that, for example, and I know we differ on this, Coda is a film that I think doesn't necessarily withstand the the sort of pressure of winning best picture. I kind of want to watch Coda. <laughs> it's like Coda, you know, I really is, liked Coda and Green Book and Crash. And Green Book doesn't. Crash you know, doesn't for me. You know, but these are the films that, like, once they've won best picture, they kind of take on a different air about them because they become the best picture so winner of that year. I think I agree with the the post mortem of that yeah. more than the nomination. Right. Does that make sense? And in, in, in I probably experience a similar thing you do with the nominations with the winners of the film. Yeah. Um. Because I'll, I'll maybe think of them more. Uh, I'll have some more scrutiny to them in yeah. that regard. But it never happens to me with the nominations. It uh, it does for me because we watch the movies because they are yeah. nominated. You know, like would we have watched this movie because it wasn't nominated? You know, like, right. But I I think once I hit the play button or once I sit down in the theater, I don't think about that anymore. That the the, the Oscars got me in the seat. 
Yeah. And now I'm just here. No. Yeah. So I, yeah. I think I, I bring a lot of baggage to it as well, but, but again, for me, the movie didn't quite work, but it was built on sort of interesting pieces. And I like it for that reason, even if I didn't think that it all clicked. God, this uh, movie works so well for me. And it's funny. <laughs> it, like I was thinking about the ending. I'm like, these endings I normally hate, but because this builds on a, on a meta meta thing, uh, I was just like, no, it is, <laughs> it is perfect. I love it so much. So, uh, yeah. I, so uh, before we wrap up and I say our t- telltale catchphrase, we've now seen all 10. This is what I was going to ask you as well. Best picture nomination. Yeah. I don't want to ask you. Here's what I want to rather than like say like, oh, what do we think some of our lead favorites are or whatever? I think it might be interesting to pick three of these that we absolutely think will not win. Okay. Okay. Um, well, the first thing I'd want to say, just just put out there as well, is that like it is we've done two of the five best foreign film nominees. Mm-hmm. And also we never do that. We don't do many of the best documentaries. So there's a lot more to mine here than just. Oh, yeah. Pictures, but so. I mean, I'm going because we've completed one task, not yeah, the yeah, other yeah, tasks yeah. we haven't completed yet. I think the, just before we say that, I think the th- interesting thing for me about this year's Oscars is I can count one, two, three, four, five movies out of the 10 that if, if any one of those five won, it would be like, yeah, that's fine. That, that 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 works. Whereas often there's usually like one film uh, that's an outlier, but this year is like, there are five excellent movies on here that I think, you know, could easily be best picture. And if you said they were the best picture, I'd be like, yeah, that, are, that checks out. There are only two movies on this list that I did not connect with deeply on an emotional level. I'm going to guess what they are. Sure. One is Maestro. Of course. Is the second one Barbie? No. It's not Oppenheimer, is it? No. Killers of the Flower Moon? Yes. Okay, so if if Maestro Killers... So you're saying... Maestro Killers of the Flower Moon. Moon. And if I had to pick another one that I, I'm trying to think, and I'm not trying to play like politics with it, <laughs> just sort of like my pure enjoyment or how I sort of like vibed with the movie. Yeah. Um, This is outside of public zeitgeist. <laughs> yeah. I would then pick Barbie. Barbie yeah. did affect me in a very, I thought, kind of profound yeah. and interesting way. But you take the hype away from Barbie in this list and it's not the best picture for me now yeah, if yeah. you mix in hype which how can you not billion dollars um and <laughs> you know and, what's cool a billion a billion dollars. Dollars. uh i would be more <laughs> than ecstatic to see barbie win so i uh i think i'm with you on the three there except i would add in american fiction you, you know like Monster. i would add in i would add in american fiction as one that i i don't think will win uh you know again i we're, we're saying this in a sort of sense of like we're just trying to predict what. Well, the, so now it's, it's like horse racing. Yeah, we're just yeah. trying to predict where the horse is going to go. And now, now we're not that, saying this based on like what we don't have a burning ambition to be like. We're not. Gonna, you and I are never going to get angry at whichever movie wins or loses, right? Um, I would, <laughs> I would question Maestro. Really? Yeah. If Maestro won. Like Coda won and Green Book won, and I, you know, was like, stop okay. saying those two movies together. There's <laughs> Coda is so good, and Green Book is meh. Coda is look it's it's amazing it's that it's that director's first film all that sort of stuff it is such oh god I hate we can that. go back and listen I hate, I hate saying this out loud i hate saying this out loud you're gonna I, do it because it's not the kind of thing that i not the kind of energy i want to bring then don't do it i just found coda to be you know 
so mid, <laughs> you know, Listen. like, you know, like, like, I, and I, you know, again, and I can tell you think that because you keep putting it next to Green Book. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like I just, I disagree. But that's okay. Listen, we got a whole episode. Same, Go listen to our Coda episode. But also at the same time, bravo, bravo, Coda, bravo. Um, it's just that I just personally didn't, you know, like find. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, the thing for me that I think was amazing is that if the holdovers, zone of interest. Poor Things, Past Lives, Anatomy of a Fall, one, I would go, yeah, that's right. If Kills of the Flower Moon, one, I would be surprised, but be like, okay, yeah, sure. I'm fairly certain it's a lock for Oppenheimer at this point. It just feels like that is, you know, like the energy you're bringing about the hype, I think that's that's the direction of this. It would basically, if any of the other films win, it'll be the surprise. Here's what it is. Yeah. Oppenheimer has two of the main things I think Oscar films can often go for if both are big enough. Yeah. One is prestige sort of historical uh, biopic kind of thing. Sure. And two is broad cultural reach. Uh, the other, the, the fourth, uh, third thing I would say is that uh, the Oscars usually give the award um, for the body of work uh, as opposed yep. to, you know, the actual specific film. And this feels like it's the Christopher Nolan Award, you know, um, and yeah. and and no shade to it. Look, I I rewatched. Uh, I need to rewatch it. I, I rewatched it, and it it's a it's a it's a. I thought you were gonna say mid. No, it's a maximum <laughs> film. It's a it's maximum film. You know, like that. That's what it is. Um, can I can I ask what your favorite movie out of this list is? Okay, you're asking me what I would vote for. No, I, I, take the Oscars out of it. I've okay. put this to list of 10 films. What's the movie here that you just enjoyed watching the most? See, or I enjoy, I, enjoy the, 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 I think that's what I'm saying is, is so interesting here, is I wholeheartedly loved The Holdovers, mm -hmm. Zone of Interest, Poor Things, Anatomy of a Fool. Those, those four, I thought Past Lives was masterful, but, but um, Poor Things, Anatomy of a Fool, Zone of Interest, and The Holdovers were four movies that I kind of walk out with, with no notes. You know what I mean? And, and go, those, those movies are just masterpieces. Yeah. I would, if I had to, you know, mm -hmm. gun to my head, pick one, yeah. I would pick holdovers with, with zone of interest being a very close second. Yeah. And that's just, you couldn't pick two more diametrically opposed Not films, but all. they both affected me incredibly. Yeah. Um, poor things was very high up there too, for me. Yeah. Um, uh, and American fiction really worked for me too. Yeah. Um, so there's a, you know, um, if anything, it should always be a celebration of movies. It should yeah. always be a celebration. Yes, and seats. Um, and, and uh, you know, if it gets you to watch a movie that you wouldn't have ordinarily watched, then that's great. We've done 10 episodes now that hopefully one of them, you know, if you weren't going to watch all of them, one of them has caught your interest. Yeah. Uh, Email us in onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com, especially if you are a new listener who has not uh, written to us before. I am talking directly into your ear holes right now. <laughs> Let us know uh, it, what you thought of one of these films or even, you know, what? If, if you haven't even gotten on board with uh, or you haven't seen or anything, one of these films, uh, what episode you got on board for with us? Because I'm always curious about that. Okay. Um, well, this has been the only podcast about the film American Fiction. It has been. Uh, Shahir, when you are not coming up with very jazzy pen names uh, to 
launch your OnlyFans career, where can folks find you? Find me at my website, swizzlebeats.com. Uh, <laughs> um, no, my website, www.shahirdowd.com. That's S-H-A-H-I-R-D-A-U-D. Or my company site, suvanova.com. That's S-U-V-A-N-O-V-A. Uh, Matt, when you are um, jumping into swimming pools that you shouldn't be in, where can people find you? You can find me just... Uh, just uh, <laughs> it's funny. I was gonna say breaststroke in my way, and I was like, I don't know if that. Yeah, we'll go with it. Over it, uh, over it on the extra history site on YouTube or extra credits. Uh, you can also check me out over at Emperor MSK on Twitter or just Matthew Kroll on Blue Sky. Can I say two things? Yes. We barely talked about how great Jeffrey Wright is. We barely talked about how amazing. We barely talked about how great Jeffrey Wright is. He was wonderful. Movie. He's amazing. He's amazing in a lot of things. Go back and check out French Dispatch. Uh, I just love him. Uh, the Batman is like as Commissioner Gordon. Uh, second thing is I'm not going to be here next week, and a decision has been made uh, unilaterally in, in my absence. And I knew this was the decision, and I'm kind of like jealous like i'm like because i think it's gonna be a fun episode so uh sheer told me he wasn't gonna be here yeah and i was like okay dad's dad's not home yeah uh what, are what, what do? do we do yeah and so obviously i text one patrick h willems and i say hey man any chance you can do the podcast next week and he goes oh yeah i could do it this day or whatever da, da, da. he goes what movie and i go we can do anything. <laughs> and I, we, yeah, li- I, I list, I list a bunch of like, we could do something we've seen. We can what do a classic. Choices? What were your choices? No, no, we, no, this is how it went. I'm, I'm filling yeah. you out. We, I'm like, we could do something that you're really passionate about. We could do an old classic that we just wouldn't talk about. I'm like, or we could just go fucking see Madam web. Mm. And he goes, huh, that's interesting. <laughs> and then we're like, do we? And we do. Uh, we're going actually uh, tomorrow, a day after we record this, we're going down uh, to, um, Alamo. Okay, you're going. Uh, you're going the full Alamo. We're doing full Alamo. What for, is the What is the food option for Madame? Oh, I don't know. Who knows? I can't. <laughs> you know what I want to see at the Alamo? What I'm so curious about is the pre-show for yeah. Madame Web. Yeah. Look, the reviews are not. Uh, so <laughs> here's something else. Yeah. Uh, I went and saw Argyle. Yeah. I hated it. Yeah. Um. But I can see, it's funny, my mom was told me afterward, I didn't have the heart to tell her I hated it. She's like, oh, I'm going to see that movie Argyle. And I was like, mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. I think my mom will really like it, but Argyle infuriated me. Okay. But like, I think there are, there is. Wait, there Argyle is, is like a, is like a, a mid-January American fiction, right? It what? is like, like, like it's about an author whose books become part of the narrative of uh i mean you know like it's it's a middle commentary right you know like i don't know if there's much commentary going on in argyle um do you think taylor swift wrote it do i think taylor swift wrote argyle you not heard this whole rumor how many fucking can can, can there be (laughs) something that i love i love taylor yeah i just don't need everything to be taylor (laughs) there's a massive conspiracy theory going on the web that taylor swift wrote argyle makes no sense but um <laughs> but no uh but the interesting thing about madam webb is mm. i from what i'm understanding there is no joy to be mined or a headspace you can be in it yeah. is just an exercise in poor filmmaking i i you know look uh i i felt i when i said the thing i said about coder in this episode i felt very bad i, d- I don't like the thing about like bashing a film you know, just for the sake of it. Uh, I do like being honest about my opinions and I, and I will always be honest about my opinions. I, 
I the thing with Madam Webb will be to navigate the film, even if you don't like it, with a kind of energy that is not here to kick a film that's obviously down. I will kick a studio that made a film. Uh, I will kick them hard in the teeth. I will respect the people and the people, the, the craftspeople who tried to make something. But it's just that, you know, to sustain a full hour conversation. Oh, no, it's going to be. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what it's going to be. You can tune in next week mm-hmm. and find out. Uh, and, and it's Patrick. It's going to be longer than an hour. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I'm here for it. Right. So come on back next week for that. And then afterwards, you hear you and I will. Is that Dune next? Uh, Dune. I don't know if maybe it'll come up. But again, as I mentioned, like uh, a teacher's lounge, which is the. Um, French film I'd love to do. I'd love to do um, the Tron on Huang film, A Taste of Things. Mm-hmm. There's so many good movies out right now. Like I know they talk about, you know, January being a dumping ground, but it's a dumping ground for the studio films. That doesn't mean it's a dumping ground for the rest of what's going on in cinema right sure. now. Sure. I mean, you, <laughs> you know. obviously have Kong X Godzilla or <laughs> yeah. whatever. Argyle um, and Madam Whip, you know. Uh, like, yeah. I, I, did you, oh, you don't watch trailers. Uh, I was going to say, if you watch Deadpool and Wolverine. No, I didn't watch the trailer for that. Um, well, it's good. Most viewed trailer ever. Congratulations. Cool. <laughs> uh, no, I'm. I, I, I actually didn't watch any of the Super Bowl uh, TV, uh, film commercials. I, I didn't watch. Oh, you know what? What came out? Here's what, what I'm going to say. Oh, Twisters. I know. Twisters was, was we all erupted because yeah. we saw that like they were remaking it. They were typing the letters out and it's slow. Lee, and then the last letter. Isaac they, Chung, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. They added the S yeah. and we all lost our minds. <laughs> right. Uh, and the then, joke that I saw on the internet is it's like when James Cameron said, I'm going to do aliens, but with a, yep. with a doll yeah. sign. Yeah. Uh, and you know what? Actually, I, I never thought I would say this based on how a trailer looked. You know yeah. what trailer looked Excellent, mm. wicked. Uh, does it follow in the tradition of uh, movie trailers that right now, like Wonka and Mean Girls, where it doesn't say it's a musical? Uh, it, I think it leaned a little more. It, it's funny the 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 audio was low. I don't yeah. quite know, but it looked like there was singing. But I need to double check. Anyway, I watch. I was watching. I was like, this looks good. Wicked's a massive property, right? Like No, a, I know, but yeah. so is a lot no, of no, stuff. No, no, I'm just saying we, it's like it's a it's a I've never seen the Broadway show. I haven't either. I'm I mean, looking forward to the film. Yeah. Uh the trailer did its job. Yeah. Uh it's funny going back to Twisters real yeah. quick. Um the entire I don't know if you feel like this or you know, if you're uh an older person, <laughs> email us in only movie podcast at gmail.com as well and let us know what you think of this. The it's official. The Super Bowl is pandering to our age demographic that we live. It's never that age demographic has always been the one that panders to. We're just now in it. Right. Because Usher, which did a fucking great performance, shout out to the double ab suit and the roller skates. Holy shit. I didn't see it. Oh my God. The Look, only can I tell you what the only thing I've seen is? What? The Ben Affleck commercial. That's fine. I thought it was great. It was funny. <laughs> That's funny. But but my point is like all the jokes, yeah, uh, and all of the performances and all of everything down to twisters. Yeah. Just is like, literally, it's like, oh, who who's the people that are supposed to have disposable income now? <laughs> oh, people in their 40s or whatever. And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> You're, you, unfortunately, what this means is what's on the horizon for us next is Principal Skinner, which was like, is it the kids who are cool? No. I, you know, is the kids who are wrong? No. I, I You know, like that. I'm already <laughs> like that with TikTok, man. I don't, yeah. I don't do TikTok. Right. Yeah. I spend too much time on TikTok. 
Uh, I won't do it. And the reason this I won't is where do I got it, the Argyle conspiracy theory from. She, oh, so I, it's a really a valuable platform. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, we'll talk at you next. Well, I'll talk at you next week, yeah. and then Shahir and I will talk at you in two weeks. Maybe me and my son will go see Madam Wib, and I can uh, I'll, I'll chime in with a voicemail. I happening. couldn't. I couldn't imagine him having a good time. But I may- mean, uh, he. You know, can I tell you the movies he really wants to see right now? He sure. really wants to see Thor Ragnarok, Transformers: Rise of the Beasts, and uh, Kung Fu Panda Four. Kung those Fu Panda the, Four has been getting pushed pretty hard. Those are the, those are the three movies. Have you seen Kung Fu Panda One through Three? Yes. Okay, cool. uh, but those are the three movies he's super excited for. Hell yeah! I don't have the heart to tell him that the Transformers movies are trash. Um, I you should show him the first Transformers movie. Too, too um, violent. Too Michael Bay. Oh, you know Michael. It's too too much. We know what Michael Bay is about. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. We've talked about yeah. him a lot. Yeah. Uh, you, you know uh, the Megan, first Transformers. Actually, some, I think holds some, up. There's some wonderful stuff in the first. I just think for a kid, the first Transformers might be. I think great. so. I uh, think Bumblebee might be the one. Oh to yeah, watch Bumblebee and, would yeah. be a good one. Yeah, but he really wants to see Rise of the Beast because. He likes the ideas of um, robot robot animals. Uh, robot gorilla, particularly. He's like robot Godzilla. Maximus Prime. Is that what it is? I don't remember. <laughs> it's been a minute. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, this episode, man. <laughs> we've been going off the rails. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye.